The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Hello and welcome to Out in South London on Resonance 104.4 FM, the station that was featured in Time Out magazine today. We open there with Marcus Reeves, one of our favourite artists that we've been playing that track a lot and supporting that one, Black Tears, that is his single from his album that will be due out soon. And we've got a packed show as ever. We're going to have some pianoki um, later on. Find out what that is if you uh, listen to the later part of the show. I'll also be talking to the journalist Patrick Strudwick about Damien Barr's book, Maggie and Me, and also Vicious, the sitcom that started on ITV last night and had a few people chatting on Twitter. Um, so we'll find out perhaps what, what out in South Londoners thought, out in South London listeners thought about that. If you want to tweet us at Outsuth London, we'll see uh, see what you thought. Um, but first of all, there is a new film out on DVD, um, May the 13th, Joshua Tree 1951, a portrait of James Dean. And I've got its director, Matthew Mishery, on the phone. Hello. Hello, Matthew. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm glad you are there. <laughs> um, and uh, tell us a little bit about um, this film because it, it's wonderfully um, shot in black and white and almost dreamlike quality. And uh, sort of, it's a part fictionalised biopic of the young James Dean, just as he was on the cusp of stardom. And some very interesting um, scenes about him learning his craft of acting. But tell us about where the idea came from. Well, I think Dreamlike is a really good uh, starting place. Uh, the, the, the film is almost uh, almost like a film poem, and uh, our starting uh, starting point in making the film, uh, you know, was really our belief that James Dean wasn't an ordinary movie star. He was mm. an extraordinary uh, film star who changed uh, the very way in which actors act, and so we didn't want to make an ordinary film about him. And so it's not really a biopic, it's, it's not even really uh, mm. a traditionally biographical film. No. It's a portrait, as the title suggests. And we take a very different, uh, a very different approach uh, to his life, and, and also, I think, a very different approach in the way we made the film. So it's stylistically, I think, very different than any other film that's been made about him. And we take, as, as our focus, uh, the year or so before he really uh, became well-known. In mm. fact, before he even moved to New York and joined the actor's studio and was first discovered on stage. And so the film is set in, uh, you know, the early, uh, you know, the early portion of, uh, of his adulthood. And it really asks like, what I think is the essential question, uh, you know, what are the antecedents to this remarkable life and career that follows? Mm. And what was that what particularly made you focus on that period then? Well, in doing, in doing, the, well, in doing the research, we, I think, found that to be the most interesting mm. part of his life because in a way it, it's, it's what influenced everything that came after. Yeah. Uh, but also, I, you know, I was aware of the of the other films that existed that deal with James Dean and his wife. And mm. while they're per- perfectly, uh, you know, serviceable, to, you know, to me they were sort of boring. And they, they dealt with a, a period, uh, there was really only uh, a few months, uh, you know, this period in which he was well-known and, uh, and a movie star. And yes, was that much was more interesting incredibly was, short. Yeah. what came first. Yeah, incredibly short, three films. Um, I know, amazing. Only one of which was really released and seen during his his lifetime. Yeah, so it was much more interesting to me to sort of say what what brought all of this about and mm. what makes somebody, uh, you know, moved to uh, to act in an entirely new way and, and mm. to bring a honesty and a rawness to performance that we'd never seen before. And obviously, it depicts a lot of relationships with men. Um, how much of that is based on sort of real? evidence or and how much is fictionalized 
Yeah, well, I think um, I, I think people are often surprised to learn that the portions of the film maybe they they suspect are fictionalized or not, and mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm. Uh, the, the portion of the film that takes place in the desert is the fictionalized element, although that too comes from uh, a kernel of truth and a little-known fact that in, in doing the research um, I felt would be the great basis for a film. Uh, when, when Dean, a few years later, uh, you know, is, is sort of plucked off the stage by Ilya Kazan in New York and brought to California to do East of Eden, he had spent an entire winter uh, in New York and was very pale, and so the studio sent him to the desert with his roommate uh, to tan. And I thought that was a great starting point uh, for a film about James Dean, yeah. James Dean in the Mojave Desert. But the portions set in the city are, are entirely taken from mm-hmm. uh, the testimonies and histories. And of course, those are always uh, complex and uh, mm-hmm. messy and sometimes contradictory. But yes. I think the notion that James Dean was. Uh, non-heterosexual is at, at this point completely uncontroversial yeah yeah um i mean he he allegedly denied actually being gay although he had registered as a homosexual to avoid the draft i read um and well, obviously we, we've heard a lot of evidence about about the relationships with men of course yeah i think uh i think denied is perhaps a strange word i i, I think that dean um was very cheeky about the whole thing he famously uh-huh. said um, I would never go through life with one hand tied behind my back. Which yeah. I think in uh, 1955, yes, I read that quote. Everything you need to know about his, uh, you know, his willingness to sort of have fun with the public and with the press, and uh, you know, it was a very, it was a very different time. In a way, I think that the 1950s were were more sexually libertine than our own conservative, uh, mm. you know, time now. Yeah. Uh, but yes. you know, there was a major difference. Everything happened behind closed doors. And there were not TMZ cameras and paparazzi uh, ubiquitous and mm. in, in one's face all the time. So people might have lived more openly, but, but behind closed doors. And I, I think that's something the film explores. Yes, definitely. And tell us a bit about the, the casting. Obviously, James Preston in the lead role, um, very sort of enigmatic and um, very charismatic. How did you find him and, and work out that he would be the right person to play James? Yeah, I think he's extraordinary in the film and that he doesn't attempt to mimicry, as some actors have mm. done before. Mm. He approaches the character uh, really at its core and uh, and becomes him and plays James Dean as a young man who's found his way to Hollywood and is sort of getting eaten alive by the, the machine that surrounds him. And that, that's also James's story. He was, he was a 19-year-old uh, uh, art school dropout from Texas who got in his truck and drove out to Los Angeles and said, I'm an actor. And uh, eventually found his way uh, into this into this movie, and I think it's a pretty startling uh, debut. We cast the film conventionally. We we put out a breakdown. Hundreds and hundreds of actors were submitted. Uh, casting director distilled it down to uh, to a, a small set of uh, of candidates, and they all came in for final auditions. And you know, when James walked into the room, I think it was very obvious when he started doing his uh, his his audition that he was to be our guy. He had this um, mm. like this real rawness about him that to me was appealing because we were exploring a part of Dean's life uh, that was less well known and, and that was formative. And, uh, you know, I didn't find the idea of, of a mimicry very appealing mm-hmm. uh, because there's really no, there's no footage of Dean when he wasn't acting. Even in the few interviews he did, and it's very, very little footage that exists of him not in the film or on television, he was very aware of the camera. I mean, he yeah. was somebody who was both very 
both very uh, uh, pessimistic about um, the idea of star making, but also very acutely aware of its possibilities. He was always putting on a performance. Uh-huh. Right. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for talking to us on Out in South London. And I hope um, the DVD release is, is a great success. Are you already working on a new project? I am, yeah. I'm doing, uh, I'm doing uh, a new film, a, a very different film, a political thriller. Ah. With, uh, it's actually it's a star vehicle for a young actor who um, uh, your listeners might know as the grandson of James Mason, the great British character actor of the 50s and ah. 60s. Right. So that's my new project. It's, it's called Disappear Here, and for those who are interested, the uh, the teaser is actually already up on YouTube. Great. Okay. Well, we'll look out for that. And thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I hope people enjoy the film. Thank you. Thanks so much, Matthew. Right. Let's um, play a track now from one of our guests from last week, Boogaloo Stew, um, popped into the studio to promote his new album, and it's called Magic Soul. And this is the Book of Love. You're listening to Out in South London on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, Rosie Wilby, and I'm delighted that I've been joined by Patrick Strad- Stradwick. I don't know what's wrong with it. I can't speak today. It's the sun. Either. I know. Patrick Stradwick. Hello. <laughs> Hello. How are you? Um, well, it's great to have you on the show because we first met, I was actually, um, we were both uh, with Clayton Littlewood at the Shoreditch Literary House Salon um, just recently when mm-hmm. a certain Damien Barr was reading from his book, Maggie and Me, which had not been published at that stage was this was about was it about january yeah uh, beginning of february beginning of february um and of course i mean it's uh, a wonderful book that i've been reading and you'd already read it at that stage i Mm. hadn't um and you were you were telling me how much you loved it and i must say he couldn't really have timed the publication much better could he Um, it's extraordinary really (laughs) um that that literally weeks before uh the memoir was used to be published a memoir called maggie and me margaret thatcher dies um yes. and the publication date was brought forward i thought it um, must have which been i'm yes. sure as a huge uh marketeer is exactly what margaret thatcher would have wanted um, uh, had yes. she no, known. i'm sure i'm sure she, um, she wouldn't have minded but yes no I, I read the book at christmas um I was one of the first people to get my hands on a copy, mm. and because you, a batch of them were sent out to journalists to see sort of what, in, what the response was. Indeed, and um, well, basically, I, I my family had to t- sort of do without me over Christmas um, on Christmas Day because oh. I was just completely immersed in this incredible book. Mm. Uh, first of all, I think it's worth pointing out that um, for all Margaret Thatcher haters like me. And I'm sure many uh, <laughs> listeners, particularly gay <laughs> listeners above the age of yes, 30, we've 35. Yes, we've not got so many Maggie fans. Um, uh, it's worth pointing out that this is this is not a, a memoir in which you know a young gay Scottish boy uh, goes on and on about how much he loves no, Maggie. No, I by mean any, to, by to be honest, Maggie means. is fairly peripheral. It's sort of that the, the thing is she was such a, a presence during the eighties for all of us growing up to, during that decade, wasn't she? Mm. And um, each chapter does actually begin with a little excerpt of one of her speeches, and I suppose it shows how it was colouring the tone of what was going on. He was Damien was growing up in sort of small town Scotland, and there's that sense of of industry sort of kind of corroding away you know there's the disused cement works where all the children are playing mm. and um, and obviously the steel works where his dad lives um, so that there's that sort of feeling of things closing down and um, and, yeah. and Scotland not uh, obviously not being probably the first place that Maggie cared about really <laughs> the last place she cared <laughs> exactly. about and, and you know, Margaret Thatcher is, is a 
um, a touchstone in a way. Yes, it's a sort of yeah. a, she provides a backdrop, yeah. both political and personal, yes. to the horrors of Damien's childhood, which were many and plenty and mm. varied. Um, I mean, in and of itself, being gay, growing, growing up in uh, Glasgow, yep. in a st- still town in the middle of, you know, in the 80s, is not going to be easy. Um, yes. and, and particularly he, with that political backdrop. I mean, you know, he talks about the um, the sort of AIDS infomercial on TV with the gravestone and, you know, how he thinks he's going to die. That and, scarred many of us, well, indeed. Well, exactly. And, yeah. he, you know, and uh, the book uh, charts the way that he was bullied at school yep. in a way that I think any gay listener can relate to. Oh, God, um, yes. You know, I, I won't give any of the specifics away, but it was it was pretty brutal and pretty crass and ultimately very isolating. I think what comes across throughout the book is a real sense of isolation, a real sense of alienation. Again, really universal themes. This is a very specific book about a very specific person, a very specific childhood at a very specific time. Mm. Yet because of the quality of the writing, because... um, uh, of the way that Damien tells it with with such credibility, with such verve, so colourful, so vivid. It's a, it becomes a universal tale that, that any gay person can relate to. And really what Damien has done here is written the gay story of our generation with the same age. Mm-hmm. You know, those of us who grew up, who are children in the 80s, um, uh, you know, pre-sexual when AIDS reared its horrible head. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's very confusing, isn't it, all of that imagery? Confusing and terrifying yeah, yeah. and Section 28 clouding exactly. and colouring our yeah. vision of the world before we even became uh, sexual or out or gay yeah, or yeah. having any contact with, with any other gay people. He has written the gay book of our generation. He has told our story. The first person to have done that in Britain and... Really, I th- I think it's one of the most important books in the gay literary canon. I think that um, there's a good argument for saying that it's it's better written than Orange is Not the Only Fruit. Wow. Um, and I mean, it you could make there are parallels to be drawn here between there this yeah. and Orange is Not the Only Fruit yes, and are, and its more real uh, actual autobiography, which is uh, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. Um, yeah. By Jeanette Winterson, of course. Yes. Um, but in the writing is different. The writing mm. is more novelistic. And what what Damien does, the, the, the very clever trick that he uses as a writer, is he writes from the perspective of the child and the child's observation yes. as the child is growing up. So the language changes and the awareness changes as he's telling the story. So it's as if you are living his childhood through him and with him as he as he is seeing it as you're growing up. In this mm. way, it, I mean, it... it, it his childhood seems more vivid to me than my own does, the memories of my <laughs> own childhood. I know, I wonder, I did, I was reading it and thinking, I wonder how he does, has remembered everything in such amazing, vivid detail. Of course, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, you can fictionalise your own memoir because you, you might not remember everything exactly as it happened. But it, it does strike a very vivid chord, doesn't yes, it? Yes, and I, I don't think any of it is fictionalised. No, I, I no, think Damien went to, went to huge so. lengths yeah. to remember. And I think if you do... You know, most of us try and forget the pain of our past, <laughs> yes. but Damien has gone has gone back there. And yeah. I mean, he he um, has said that um, when he was writing the most brutal parts of it, where his um, mother's boyfriend um, is 
physically really horribly abusive to Awful, him. Yeah. He, um, after writing, just vomited. He talked about that at the literary salon, didn't he? He was writing in his shed and went out into the garden to, to be sick, yeah. 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 And, you know, th- the other thing that's important about the book is it is a story about um, abuse, about the, the yeah. abuse of a yeah. child and the many ways in which that, that can manifest. Um, you know, people think of child abuse as just being, you know, a child being hit or being sexually assaulted. But, you know, there are instances where, for example, he is plunged in and out of a, a, a scalding bath. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, the description of which, if that were anywhere else, if that was in a um, police station or in a prison, would be described as torture. It's water yes, torture. Yes, yeah. So... Um, I know, and it's shocking, isn't it? But also very touching in his protectiveness towards his sister, Teeny, who... I, I think doesn't get any violence towards her, does she? Because Damien take, absorbs it all. Yes, as the eldest, Damien protects his younger sister yeah. as much as he possibly can. And that's yeah. that's really very touching. Yeah, it is, yeah. The reason why this book is so powerful in the way that it's written, above the incredible descriptions, above the colourful, vivid language, is actually the restraint that he uses. Mm. He doesn't... You know, a misery memoir will go into the worst bits and and shine a massive torch on it and magnify it <laughs> yeah. um, in a in a sort of putrid way. This brings you to the scene and then whisks you away just as you realise what's happening. And that is far more effective. That's right. I mean, it even torture, you know, touches on sort of, you know, the, the good sides of your parents divorcing and having two Christmases and sort of there's that very sweet child, always ever the optimist and trying to find good things and nice things. And when, you know, at, at the start, when it starts with the scene with Maggie on the news emerging from the bombed hotel and, and you know, he sort of sees her as a pretty blonde lady and he hopes that she's OK, you know, yeah. and... There's a very sort of sweet voice, isn't there? Absolutely. And and what uh, what Thatcher does and what she represents for Damien is escape. Yeah. This The other reason why this is not a misery memoir is that this is a redemption memoir. This is, a, this is a, an escape memoir mm-hmm. whereby someone through, through their own cleverness, through hard work, studying... Yeah. Manages to get away, gets to university, you know, ends up as a journalist at the Times and eventually writes this book. Um, You know, most people around him didn't get out, didn't escape. And, you know, the the hardest thing to read is what happens to one of his friends that that didn't Mm. escape. Mm. Um, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. I've, I've become evangelical about it because really... There aren't. That it's very rare that um, uh, a gay memoir, i.e., a memoir written by a gay person, that that has far-reaching um, uh, effects and f- and speaks to a whole generation comes 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 through. And I think what Damien's will do, unlike many others, is it will have broad crossover appeal. I think it will be a bestseller. It's already had critical acclaim. Yes, I think it has, yeah. I think this is this is going to be talked about for decades to come. So you you think it will go mainstream as opposed to obviously a lot of LGBT, if you like, books tend to be 
within a certain niche, but you think this has that uh, potential to really... Absolutely. And, and there's, you know, there's already been um, interest in terms of adapting it. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, you know, book of the week on, on radio, going to be book of the week on Radio 4. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And I also think word of mouth, you know, everyone that I know that has read it has felt as mm. strongly and as evangelically about it as I do. Yeah. And, you know, I've told, you know, a million people that I know. And I, I think it, I think the word of mouth spread will be pretty rapid. Amazing. Well, Maggie and Me is published by Bloomsbury. It's by Damien Barr, so do check that out. Well, the other thing um, that we we said we would talk about, a very different uh, kind of thing, ITV on Monday nights. Many people might have been recently hooked on Broadchurch, but very different Monday night slot uh, started last night. It was Vicious, which is a sitcom starring Ian McKellen and Derek Jacobi. Um, And... Well, it's sort of been described, it was hyped up in the papers as a kind of rising camp because it was a camp <laughs> version of, of rising damp. Um, yeah. And now on my Twitter timeline last night, it, there was a very mixed response. Um, I have to say some people were were not enjoying it at all, but there were some people who were. Channel 4's Matthew Kane actually tweeted that he was really liking it. So, Patrick, what did you think? I, I didn't like it, and mm. um, here's why. Okay. It had incredible acting talent. Yeah. Ian McKellen, Derek Jacobi, Francis de la Tour. Yes, he's brilliant as well. Um, yeah. It was created by the playwright Mark Ravenhill. Exactly, yeah. And the writer of Will and Grace. And the writer of, a writer from Will and Grace. Yeah. Exceptional talent. Yes. <laughs> it, and it was a sitcom that really wasn't very funny. And it was mm. a sitcom called Vicious that wasn't, wasn't really vicious. vicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, th- there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the stereotypes of having two old queen characters uh, ripping shreds off each other. Now, I think you can get away with a stereotype if it's funny, if it's good, if it rings true. You know, stereotypes um, are stereotypes because there's a grain of truth in it. The problem was, these weren't stereotypes. These were cardboard cutout figures. It it was quite shallow, wasn't it, in that sense? I mean, obviously things, I guess, things develop and you get more into it Mm. as, as the series goes on, although... I, I would imagine some people who watched the first episode may not tune tune back in. Um, but yes, it didn't feel there, there was much depth to any of the characters at all. And I think that's that's another problem with with the writing is mm. that actually a lot of the lines could be interchangeable, could have been said by either Derek Jacobi or Ian McKellen. Yeah, and that is a right. bit of a sign of when the the, the the writing hasn't properly mined a character. Um, because if a character is fully formed and um, uh, complete, no one else can say those lines. And also the the sort of handsome young man who moves in upstairs, you know, that just seemed a bit gratuitous kind of, oh, here's a a good-looking young lad. Yes, although, I mean, as a a focal point (laughs) for the humour, it worked in some some cases. It it wasn't completely unfunny. There were a couple of good lines. There was a funny moment when when, uh, the young man pulls the the heavy curtains open. That was very odd, though. The curtains open and they, um, Derek Jacobi and Ian McKellen come back into the room and kind of go, oh, you know, as if they've never seen daylight. Well, that was the point, and I thought that was (laughs) funny because... I suppose so. It just seems ridiculous. It was kind of unbelievable. But my my other problem, I have to say, as phenomenal an actor, as legendary as an actor as he is, Derek Jacobi hammed it up to a f- far too much. It was hammy, yes. I mean, the, the character should have been hammy, 
but the performance by over-egging the ham, and I'm using a lot of <laughs> food metaphors ham. here, yes. by over-egging the ham, um, it, it rendered it pantomime. It rendered it, it, there was no nuance there. Actually, if he'd held back a lot more, it would have let the writing, the lines, the dialogue come through more than it did. Mm. So it felt like, it felt like provincial rep in the 1970s with two fading stars just hacking at each other. It should have been like a gay version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Uh you know, with absolutely incredible lines where people are, two people are destroying each other comedically. And frankly, you could go into any gay bar on Compton Street. And you could find that. And and find it, hear it, you know, bring along a tape recorder and write it down. Um, But alas, Vicious had no bite. No, I, th- I think you're you're absolutely right, um, it, it, and it is strange given given the people involved, isn't it? Do you, do you think it's something that could improve, or do you think it? I'm sh- I'm sure <laughs> it will, but yeah. the problem is is that that uh, the audience will drop off next week because the people oh, didn't like it won't go back to it. But I, I have heard that it does get much better yeah. from the people that have seen the full thing. I mean, I, I think sitcoms do, and I think they're very hard. I think that first episode is always very hard establishing things. We, me and um, mm. Wendy, my girlfriend, were chatting the other week about Sue Perkins' sitcom Heading Out, mm. and I think that improved massively. Definitely. And I actually really enjoyed that by the end, but I wasn't quite sure after the first episode or two. So I think absolutely it's tricky, there is. There is, there is nothing harder on television than producing a, and writing a sitcom mm. because no one can guarantee an involuntary human reaction, which is laughter. Oh, yeah, well, and, <laughs> as a comedian, oh, yes. <laughs> right. And nothing I always is, think my best jokes are never the ones the audience actually well, Exactly. Yeah. And, and, no, and nothing is harder than the, than the very first episode, not least because now, of course, on social media, Everyone's everyone is about to pounce. Yes, and, yeah. you know, when, when criticism picks up steam, it's this whole snowballing like kind of stone of madness and that's what happened last night and Vicious was still trending on Twitter this morning as people were still you know, People debating it or letting more into vicious a... than the uh, than the program itself. Yes, yes. I mean the, the good <laughs> thing is for the for those involved, it didn't get quite the venom that uh, the the Ben Elton comedy oh, that started that sort last of take, week did. Taking the heat off it a bit, I suppose. Indeed, yeah. which has a lesbian character, um, yeah. which was absolutely without redemption. Uh, yes, I must admit, I haven't been tempted to watch that one, having read what has been said. You're, yeah, you're not maybe missing I, much. I don't know. But I, maybe I'm I'm sure, out of curiosity. Yeah, but, yeah, I'm sure Vicious will get better. If At the moment, it feels like a bit of a wasted opportunity, given the talent involved. And frankly, someone should have had a better a grip on uh, the script editing, yeah. and someone should have had a better grip on the actors. You know, And when you're dealing with some of the best actors we have in in this country um, there's really no excuse Hmm. There was an interesting review actually in Metro today, the TV critic was saying that you know, it, we've come sort of further on now and it, it, it's OK. Where once it might have been offensive to portray such stereotypes, we've sort of come through that and now we can laugh at it and it's sort of showing the sign of the times. It's sort of a strange kind of sentiment in, in a way in that we can sort of laugh at that now because, you know, gay rights have come that much more forward. But I don't know about that. I think there's something in that. And actually, that's what Ben Summerskill from Stonewall was arguing in a blog he wrote for The Guardian um, that it's a sign of how far things have come that we 
don't feel so offended by it. Mm. And there's something in that, but I kind of just swing back to my original point, which is that, you know, a stereotype you can you can you can properly get away with if you absolutely nail it, if mm. you absolutely nail the characterization and if you make it splendidly hilarious. Yeah. Um yeah. which they didn't manage to do. So okay. yeah. I, I feel a bit disappointed. Yes. Okay. Well, we gave Damien Bars, Maggie and me a, a big thing, thumbs up. Five stars. Um, five stars. Six <laughs> stars. Six out of five. And uh, not so much for uh, <laughs> for Vicious. Maybe but a three. Maybe a three. Well, that, that's quite generous, actually. Um, so we'll, we'll see if it improves. But Patrick, where can we uh, follow you on Twitter and find out what you're up to? I am at Patrick Strud. Yes, well, we shall we shall check you out because uh, you've written lots of uh, interesting things over the over the years. Uh, written a lot about gay conversion therapy. I, I have indeed. Hot you, topic. Yes. So we'll <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep an eye on what you're up to. Thanks so much for joining us on Out in South London. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, let's hear a track from one of our recent live guests, Erin McEwen. This is her track. Take Proof. a photo. You're listening to Out in South London on Resonance 104.4 FM. My thanks to the journalist Patrick Strudwick for all those reviews in the last section of the show. Now it is the final section of this week's show and we've got something, well, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen because I've been joined by B Flat. Hello, B. Oh, well. Good evening, Rosie. <laughs> it's very nice to have you uh, to have you here. Now, B, I believe that you're presenting Pianoki every Sunday at the Alley Cat Club on Denmark Street. Yes, indeed, right, uh, right on Tin Pan Alley itself. Yes, yes, Pianoki. It's a um, it's a piano backed sheet music karaoke. Oh, I like I like the way you said sheet music. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like your voice is breaking almost. Oh, oh do you think so? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, um, just explain. So people get you play piano, and people get up and sing, and, and yes. there's a, a whole mix of music. I just want to say my voice broke long ago. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, yes, people just uh, they they select from a menu musicale on the table. They fill out a request form, and bingo, you're called into the spotlight. And there you go, and and I, it's my pleasure to play for you. Well, we're going to hear something from you um, in a minute, but tell us about where the idea for the show came, because you have a musical director, don't you, Martin? Oh, Mr. Martin Neal. Oh, Martin Neal, you don't get on with him, do you? Do you really have to mention him? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Well, he was oh. he, he was involved with the Blue Lips, so well, you know, he's got some interesting experience. Oh, well, yeah. oh, yes, I suppose he has. He um, he's, uh, he's actually still going, I believe it or not. I mean, still alive. We don't really get on very well. <laughs> in fact, we've all... We've agreed not to be seen in the same room together. Well, that's probably good, isn't yeah. it? He's actually just working on a new project to, um, he'll be playing for, uh, he's called it Ladies in Waiting and he's right. hoping to get this going shortly at the uh, Royal Free Hospital. It's for expectant ladies and it's concerts for, uh, yes, for these, you know, usually first Pregnant time. Ladies. Yes, yes, yes. And, yes. Um, and uh, <laughs> it, when you think of it, it's sort of quite good, really. It's two, two for the price of one, isn't it? Or maybe even three. I suppose so. Yes, yes that yes. is quite a good deal, really. Yes. You're not going to start charging the 
the bumps. Well, well, maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> I've not been to the Alley Cat actually. How big is that place? Oh, it's a little. It's a, it's a basement uh, a basement club. Uh, yes, because uh, I know the Twelve Bar Club. That's no, it's new. on the opposite side. On the opposite side. On the opposite side, and I also believe that upstairs is where uh, the Rolling Stones made one of their cut one of their early hits. Oh, well, really? I'm just absolutely delighted to be downstairs seditiously or. Oh, uh, playing Mozart and uh, underneath the Rolling Stones. Oh, yes, yes, you know, very, very subversive. And, and be, ha- did you ever hang out with any sort of, you know, stars like like the Stones or anything? Oh, good right? grief! No, that's why I never took Concord. I couldn't bear the thought, even a supersonic one, of sitting next to them. Do you know? Recently, <laughs> do you see that their concert in Hyde Park sold out in under five minutes? And as I was saying to my audience recently, look at that, ladies and gentlemen, a hundred thousand and nobodies. Very different to my audience. You are somebody. In fact, you're everybody. You're the show! (laughs) And Um, at those prices, my dear, £95 was the cheapest. I know. it's going on about opera? I mean, do you know for that price, (laughs) they should be providing free cocaine, don't you think? Because the music's so boring, you've got to endure it somehow. Gosh, there's there's a thought. Um, (laughs) Yes, I don't know whether they'll get that approved, really, but you never know. Oh, dear, at £95. And that was the pr- apparently the tickets are reselling and going on for hundreds of pounds. Well, that's what happens when you're very, very famous. That's but, the um, market. Um, I know, I know. Well, what what are you going to play for us, B? Oh, oh, oh. Well, now, uh, wait, I'd love to play you something by... Irving Berlin. Oh, yes. Oh, do you know I was in New York for his 100th birthday? <laughs> right. Yes, yes, in, in 1988 uh, with the blue lips. We, oh, with the yeah. blue lips. And um, yes, he had his 100th, not, did I say birthday? I'm so sorry, 100th Christmas. Although he was Jewish, it was still his, <laughs> it was still his 100th Christmas. Right. After all, he did write White Christmas. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Well, it, we, it's funny, actually. I was talking to the Jewish performer Brian Lobel yes. about how many um, Jewish artists actually wrote Christmas songs. Yes. Which is quite, <laughs> quite interesting, isn't it, if you think about it? <laughs> yes, yes. So, yes, well, I, I'd love to play you oh, a song that in many ways sums up much that I feel about the whole thing myself. It's entitled, I Love a Piano. Oh, okay. Take it away. Are you ready? (laughs) I think so. I love a piano, I love a piano, I love to hear somebody play. Upon a piano, a grand piano, it simply carries me away. I know a fine way to treat a Steinway. I love to run my fingers over the keys, the ivories. With the pedal, I love to meddle when Ashkenazi comes this way. I'm so excited when I'm invited to hear that go go player play. So you can keep your fiddle and your bow and give me P I A N O O O. I love to stop right beside an upright or a high tone, baby grand. 
We've heard this before. <laughs> As a child, I went wild when the band played. How I ran to the man when his hand swayed. Clarinets were my pets and a slight trombone I thought was simply divine. But today, when they play, I could hiss them. Every bar is a jar to my system. But... There's one musical instrument that I call my... I love a piano, I love a piano I love to hear somebody play upon a piano A grand piano, it simply carries me away I know a fine way to treat a Steinway I love to run my fingers over the keys, the ivories. And with the pedal, I love to meddle. When Ashkenazi comes this way, I'm so excited when I'm invited to hear that go-go player play. So you can keep your G-U-I-T-A-R and give me P-A-A-N-O. I love to stop right beside an upright or a high-toned baby grand. Whoa! Goodness. Oh, well, oh, thank you so much for that. That's B-flat, who is definitely not the same person at all as, as Martin Neal. Um, and, uh, well, if, you, if any of our listeners felt like getting up and singing while listening to that, then they should head on down on this Sunday you're on at the Alley Cat Club and every Sunday in, in May. Yes, and can I just say that it is there's a special welcome to, to gay <laughs> people because, you see, the thing is, um, you see, it's somewhere where I think that uh, gay people could bring a member of 
of their family. So it's an outreach, really, to the straight community ah, from the gay community. Providing an excellent service. And what did you think of our, our marks and piano? Um, I have to plug them because they, oh, they I provided see that. it. Did I, you like it? I see that. Yes, it's a, it's a shimmel. So let me give a little oh, plug a to shimmel as well. Oh, is that yes, right? from Markson's. Yes, yes, I, I know. They're in Albany Street. Oh, I oh, see. I'm oh, getting, getting an extra, extra plug. plug. Oh, dear. Be I, I, I could be on their payroll before. I know. You, maybe you'll get a free piano <laughs> from them. Well, thanks so much for joining us and um, and playing to us. Um, and hopefully lots of people will, will come down on Sunday. Thank I you certainly so much, hope Bea. so too. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> Bye-bye. Well, let's hear a little bit of Heather Peace's single, Fight For, and then we'll be back to chat a little bit more after this. That is Heather Peace. That is Fight For. She actually won Celebrity of the Year at the G3 Awards that me and my girlfriend Wendy were at. Very swanky do on Friday night. Of course... I didn't win any awards, wasn't expecting to, to be honest, but you never know, a future year, hint, hint. Um, I doubt it'll be Celebrity of the Year. Maybe our little radio show can win a Broadcast of the Year award, who knows? Um, That would be nice, wouldn't it? So we were talking just before that track to B-flat, who is there presenting the Pianuki show. It's 7.30 on Sunday at the Alley Clat, which is also where David Padella was producing his um, after-show club, so you may have actually been there um, when he was talking about that on the show. You may have checked that out. And uh, so pianoki.co.uk is the website for that. I've got a couple more plugs. Bear the Rock Musical is on at the Union Theatre until the 25th of May. It's uh, the story of two gay high school students and their struggles at a Catholic boarding school in the States. Um, And also I will be presenting my show 90s Woman as part of Wandsworth Arts Festival on the 16th of May. Um, at the Exhibit Cinema in Balham, so check that out as well. And uh, also next week on Out in South London, I mentioned Little Episodes, who are a publisher who have a book, Queer Episodes, out at the moment, an anthology of prose and poetry, and I've got a piece in it also, Clayton Littlewood, Jonathan Kemp, and lots of fabulous writers. All proceeds go to the Albert Kennedy Trust. We will have Michaela and Lucy from Little Episodes talking about Queer Episodes next week, so tune in for that and also lots more LGBT arts and culture so do um, tune in next week and we're going to play out with a little bit of Queen, why not and uh, this is Crazy Little Thing Called Love This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at ResonanceFM.com.